Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Carrillo. Today, we have Hunter Thompson. Hunter has raised over $25 million in private capital from over 300 investors and controls over $75 million in commercial real estate. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Hunter. Yeah, yeah I appreciate it. And actually, we do have to update that bio. We just finished our most recent raise. So now that number is $35 million of capital raise, thanks to some very, very loved investors. So thanks again for having me on. <laughs> awesome. What did you guys close on? It was actually an ATM deal and it's very interesting space. We can talk about it if you're interested, sure. but you know, the real estate market has been filled with a lot of question marks and question marks create an opportunity for pricing arbitrage, but sometimes those question marks create an opportunity for, you know, bad investments. So right. COVID has created a really interesting situation where the lending market froze up and then these other niches that I've had my eye on started to become really desirable. So it's a very interesting niche and we could talk about it if you're interested. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's awesome. I, Cause I have a couple of questions cause I was reading an article earlier today about it. Um, what was your background prior to starting to invest in real estate? So I have a background as an entrepreneur and you know, when I was five years old, I remember living in my mom's house and we lived very close to a stadium and there was a lot of opportunity to sell parking if you had like kind of a large mm -hmm. yard. And I remember I made my first hundred dollars selling parking spaces in my mom's backyard. And of course I had to split the profit with her, which is kind of what I learned about this concept of owning land versus, uh, you know, using land. And I just was fascinated by it. And um, that is something that, you know, I say that story and it sounds anecdotal, but it was actually a huge moment for me. I mean, I remember making the deposit of the first hundred dollars into a bank account and being like, okay, I'm rich now, you know, no comma club, right? That's the whole thing. Like I just, I was on my journey and, um, in high school, I started a company that did uh, event production and did high school dances. And then when in college, I actually did a job as a professional poker player. That's how I paid my way through, not how I paid my way through college, but how I got to do some cool stuff during college. Right. Cause any expenses that you have, going towards books and stuff. That's one thing, but I'm talking about, you know, travel, for example, um, that was all paid through online poker. And then I was very fortunate because online poker, the boom took place, which created, it was a multi-billion dollar boom in the poker industry. If you weren't in the industry at the time, you can look it up, just Google the poker boom. And it created a great opportunity where if you took it seriously, if you focused and got a coach and could learn this very challenging game, you could make 20, 30, $40,000 a month. And I remember I had my first $30,000 month and I thought, okay, I don't need to do anything besides this during college. And that's what I did during summers. When I graduated college, then all of a sudden, you know, 10, 20, $30,000 a month, there's other ways to make that money that are more scalable and you can actually build a business and you wouldn't lose money, you know, as frequently. And so then I started real estate and that was really kind of my background. So other than uh, your first forte into it, when you're renting out that parking lot and your mom didn't have to do anything to collect right. her, her portion of it, which obviously <laughs> you look back on is probably the sweetest part of that whole deal. 
Um, <laughs> why did you choose real estate as an investment vehicle in the sense of that, um, other than going into other different businesses or expanding other businesses you had like previously in high school and stuff like that? So the massive opportunity that took place in 2008 was very well suited for my personality. You know, everyone has their own strengths and weaknesses, and I have many weaknesses and just a few strengths. It just so happens that going right when everyone's looking left can be very lucrative as an investor. Yeah. And so the mother of that kind of concept was 2008. Mm -hmm. And so when the seizing up of the capital markets took place, I thought this has got to be what everyone's been talking about in terms of blood in the streets from an investor's perspective. And so I was dedicated to financial assets. Um, I started just learning as much as I could about Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, et cetera, investing in stocks that I anticipated would do well coming out of the recession. And they did. Now, most people that started in 2008, they had success. So that's not really anything favorable, but the opportunity that it, the gut perspective, right? The ability to actually say to your friends and family and loved ones that love you, hey, you're doing something insane and you just know from a gut feel it's the right thing to do, that was actually a good learning moment for me. But I'll tell you what, a lot of people don't talk about a 2010 nearly enough. For me, that was the moment that I made a huge transition in my worldview, which was that despite the fact that I had done all this research, when the European debt crisis happened, which is very similar to the crash in 2008, but in Europe, there was a complete amount of volatility in the US markets. And out of all the research I had done, I never anticipated that the German bond yields, for whatever reason, would be playing a huge role in my portfolio. And so that moment, I, the moment where everyone all of a sudden was focusing on that ridiculous metric, I realized no matter how much research I do, no matter how many people I hire, I'm never gonna be able to predict that or mitigate that. I need to find a vehicle which is well-suited for risk mitigation and can be conducted at an elite level without hiring massive bureaucracy in terms of employees, because that's just antithetic to the way that I wanted to live my life. So that quickly led me to real estate. What was your first real estate investment? I was very fortunate in terms of that, because when I moved to California, the market was decimated. And so when I started to build my real estate career, I was quickly surrounded by the people that were able to weather that storm. And so the people that were able to weather that storm, by the way, were not investing in fixed and flip properties in California. They lost their shirt. They were investing in 15 to $50 million apartment complexes, self-storage properties, mobile home parks, et cetera, through syndications. And again, this is before the advent and popularization of quote crowdfunding. But I was able to invest $25,000, $50,000 into these $15 million assets that had a default rate of 1.5% during 2008. And so that was some of the first investments I made, which is not the typical route, but I was very fortunate because of who I met and the time at which I met them. Yeah, that's great because people, when I don't think people uh, really know that debt, uh, only like 1% of agency debt loans went bad in 08. Exactly. And, uh, for agency, that's we're talking like larger multifamily uh, for the most part, and uh, that's it's something that most people don't have access to because you know maybe you're accredited or you know to find deals that 
allow someone in that is not accredited, you need to have a lot of uh, networking experience and uh, do a lot of networking. So it's something that most people aren't allowed into, I guess you would say. So um, that's awesome. That's a, that's a great way to enter, uh, which uh, I haven't heard before. Most people start with something uh, a little bit like a single family or small multifamily. But um, what is your current investing strategy? And, and you own a lot of different asset classes, obviously ATMs as well, but you're in everything. Um, what do you guys are looking for your, uh, your criteria, your strategy, and um, what asset classes? So this is an important distinction to make at this point in the conversation, because our position as in ours in my firm, ASIM Capital, we're positioned in a unique manner, which is not typical. So the way that I view the investment space, I wanted to leverage the expertise, the track record, the ability to access credit, of really experienced savvy operators that stand to gain millions of dollars if they execute. And so I want to defer to their expertise and leverage all those things they're bringing to the table and just invest my 25 or $50,000. So that's what I wanted to do as a passive investor. And then I realized with all this interest that's coming the way of this vehicle, the syndicated slash crowdfunded model, can I build a business around that vehicle? Now at the time, there was a lot of naysayers. Now you can't build a business around passive investing. That doesn't make any sense. But I knew that there's the tsunami of interest coming because of the Jobs Act, which allowed you to publicly solicit accredited investors online. And so I said, if I can build up a Rolodex, if I can build and develop a due diligence process, which is far above and beyond what a typical passive investor can produce, then we can leverage that as a resource, pool investors together, perhaps negotiate favorable terms, with the operating partners who, rather than investing $50,000, maybe investing half a million when I first got started, cumulatively. That's the business model that I created. And it that's much more thought out than it was at the time. Really what happened was I had developed some relationships and then I wanted to help my mom invest, my sister, my best friend, et cetera. So we went from three investors to five to a hundred to now we have hundreds and have probably purchased around a hundred million dollars worth of commercial real estate. So the reason I say that to answer your question is that the way that we're positioned in the marketplace, we can defer to others' expertise in various niches, whether it be mobile home parks, which I'm a huge fan of, self-storage, senior living, distressed debt, and the ATM business. So I'm not a jack of all trades. I have one trade. The trade is being extremely knowledgeable when it comes to vetting and building relationships with top-tier operating partners. And that's what my firm does. Awesome. That's great. So you've raised tens of million dollars for your real estate and uh, other asset classes. And uh, someone contacts you and wants to begin a conversation to invest. Uh, what is the procedure you take from there? You know, actually, that's a really important question because there's an assumption there that a lot of people make, which is that that's where the investments process starts. And that's not what you're saying. And I know you're actually, you don't think that because we're having this conversation right now and I'll explain what that means. But my capital raising process does not start with someone reaching out to me, having a conversation. It is very challenging to get 30 minutes of my time because my schedule is insane. So what I have developed and what I wrote my book about raising capital for real estate, which by the way, you can get free copy at raisingcapitalforrealestate.com. It's all about attracting investors through building a platform and then educating them through podcasts or eBooks or other call to actions, providing them templates for anything that's going to help them understand your investment thesis, nurturing them through 
emails or webinars or podcasts or et cetera, just replicatable, scalable, repurposable pieces of content that actually add value to their lives. So by the time you send out a deal, they're knowledgeable, they're nurtured, they've built a relationship with you, not by taking your time, but they know you incredibly well because of the things you put out that all people can enjoy at the same time. So as an example, this podcast and what you're building is to help streamline your customer nurture and attraction process. Now, usually when someone requests a call, it's because they have a specific question about a deal that we've just recently put out. It's very rare that someone would reach out to me or that I would be able to have a call with someone to say, who are you? Great to meet you, et cetera. Because I do a ton of that work to streamline that. So about the time we talk on the phone, they go, holy crap, like Hunter Thompson is in the Hunter Thompson is in the Cashflow Connections podcast. I've been listening to you for hundreds of hours. It's so great that we finally get connected. Here's my specific question about this offering. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, your investors may feel like they're not that close to you. Why should they invest with you versus anyone else? And nothing can be further from the truth. And again, I'm sure you know this as well. I'm sure some of your listeners know more about you, especially when it comes to investing than some of your best friends. And people that are followers of me or read my book or listen to my show, they know things about the intricacies of my personality that you would have to spend years talking to me, but they have, they've done, the years have been compressed into short little increments of one hour interviews and little short Monday minutes that we do. So hopefully that answers your question. I know that wasn't exactly what you asked, but that's the truthful answer. No, of course. I mean, someone's, you're not just going to put someone on a mailing list and uh, send them a deal and they're going to invest, you know, it's going to be something where you're building that relationship. And, you know, obviously the easiest, I guess the most efficient way of building that relationship is through our thought leadership platforms and also putting them in a uh, emailing list and stuff like that. Cause like we do the same thing. We, you know, we have a general mailing list and then we also like have a separate deals mailing mailing list so that we can, when we're putting out deals, it's people that we've spoken to before people that just Mm -hmm. get our regular weekly newsletter that probably will never invest, don't want to invest, don't want to see deals, but they want to learn more about what's going on with real estate. And that's perfectly fine. So it's, it's very, it's great to, you know, provide that information. Um, you, you spoke, which is great, uh, previously about vetting different operators, and this would be something that's awesome, uh, as a resource for our passive investors as well, that are listening, myself being active and passive investor, I'm interested to see when you're looking and vetting a, uh, an operator, what, what are you really looking for? Obviously track record, but are there anything else that you're looking at or that you might look initially and say no, or maybe, or in the future? Mm-hmm. And, uh, how, what is your process for doing that? So first of all, it's an excellent question. And I'm excited to have this type of conversation because like I mentioned at the beginning of my career, I spent a lot of time trying to convince people that just because an investment was passive, didn't mean it was a Ponzi scheme. Right. And now we see people such as yourself that say, no, I do have an upper hand in certain areas of real estate. It's just that I also understand that I can leverage other people's expertise as well passively. And the returns are actually somewhat comparable, which is insane to me and very favorable. But as far as vetting sponsors, you know, I like commercial real estate because of the numbers. It is an objective way to determine value, there's an objective way to determine and predict cash flow. And so where I start to get skittish with sponsors, two areas. I want to be able to analyze things on a risk-adjusted basis. 
And so I can analyze cap rates. I can analyze predicted cash flows. I can analyze the potential for comps to be real. But the fuzzy slash art version of due diligence is where I want to eliminate as much unquantifiable risk as possible. So as an example, business plan implementation risk is something that I don't want to tolerate unless it's made up for significantly in the returns. To clarify, if I have a sponsor that only invests in Austin, Texas, they have 350 million units, or excuse me, $350 million under management in Austin with one property management company within one risk profile, and this is going to be their 15th deal, I can then remove so much uncertainty. I can actually focus on the numbers. I can focus on the cap rate. I can focus on the comps, et cetera. But what I'm not willing to do is if that same operator is now investing in Atlanta, there's so much uncertainty because it's not rinse and repeat. It's The market's not rinse and repeat. The, the product type might not be rinse and repeat. The actual property management company might not be the same. All these uncertainties, you're incurring the risk of the implementation, the integration of that business plan. And so you can do it. It just needs to be reflected in the returns. So that's the first thing is just rinse and repeat versus um, doing it for the first time. The second thing, when I talk to sponsors, the number one most important determining factor of whether or not investors get to keep their principal and not lose money is debt. All of the stories you've ever heard about someone losing money in real estate has something to do with debt. Okay, not all, but 99%. So what I mean by that is that if you have a 100% vacant office complex in the middle of America and you own it free in cash, you don't have a problem. What you have is a 100% vacant office complex in the middle of America. Now, if you have the exact same property and it's 50% occupied, but you've got it levered, you could have a real serious problem with protecting investor capital. So I want to talk to sponsors and analyze the way that they respect leverage and the terms of the leverage and the debt service coverage ratio and the interest only period, the amortization schedule, all these other metrics that it comes to debt that you can twist and turn to make things more aggressive or conservative. So I can go into a litany of things that we do that most wouldn't even apply to most investors because it's not worth their time if they're only investing $50,000. But those are two hacks that I think will help you tremendously. Yeah, the other thing that I look at too is I like to see, obviously, how close their team is from the property. Like you were saying, obviously, mm. someone in Texas, they might not have someone an hour away or two hours away or whatever it might be in Atlanta. If they have seven assets in Atlanta, uh, maybe they're there once a month, you know what I mean? Uh, compared to someone mm -hmm. that's seeing it twice a year. The other thing too is um, I like to take away a lot of the rent increases and kind of work backwards. Um, so, cause I'm not a 12 tab kind of underwriter, let's say, but when I'm looking at it, the other thing too, is I want to take away a lot of that and see what happens if, uh, you know, see if we're buying this in uh, February, 2019, what's going to happen um, uh, or mm -hmm. 2020, right? Before COVID right. and uh, what's going to happen with what, what we're doing and uh what happens if we can't raise the rents? And uh, yeah, it's very interesting with the interest only and all these different things that are different from normal mortgages that most people are aware of, the 30-year fully amortizing home loan. Uh, commercial, there's so many nuances. So it's uh, that's awesome. That's very, it's very good to, to hear uh, how you do it. But um, when you're explaining an opportunity to your investors, obviously you send out an email, this is what we have, uh, go through it, set up a call with one somebody from my team or myself. Um, how in the weeds do you get when you're explaining an opportunity, say, for instance, if it wasn't done by that email and uh, we were just talking, uh, 
pre-COVID, post-COVID, um, you know, in a bar or at a coffee shop? Mm. So that's an important question because before I answer that, I always want to get a perspective on their background and their level of sophistication and their interests. So when I do get on calls with investors or potential investors, the first thing I say is, you know, number one, so glad we got connected. I've got about 30 minutes. I'm going to have to jump off at 3.30. Mm -hmm. And is it okay if we jump right in? Just to establish that this is not going to be an endless pitch that both <laughs> of us are going to go to sleep. I just want to make that clear up front. Um, then I want to say, can you tell me a little bit about your background so that I can learn more about your you know, history investing in real estate and otherwise? And from there, I can gauge what language to be using, how much I should be focusing on the details and underwriting versus explaining you know, what a syndication is, for example, which is something that still happens. So... I'll give you a perfect example. If someone is a Wharton MBA and this is their 15th invest in, investment in a syndication, they have investments across multiple asset classes. My answer for explaining the deal to them is very different from someone whose aunt is on the phone with me and is now contemplating making their first passive investment. So again, that's the truthful answer of your question, right? So like in the sense that my answer may be very, very different and should be. Now I have a tendency to jump into the details as most analytical people do because they want to impress those that are impressive. But it's actually the opposite that's true. So anybody that actually knows anything about this industry knows that it's, it's not the market, it's not the population growth, it's not the number of units, it's all, the, all these other things which are absolutely critical that you know, but at the elite level, that's standard. That's a requirement. Everyone has a thesis that's well thought out. What's actually going to make the difference is the emotional connection that you form with your investors. And that is a little bit counterintuitive and it's even more pronounced with people that are also analytics. I'll give you an example. Someone that's a CPA gets on the phone with me and they want to jump in in the discussion about profit and losses, for example. I will not entertain that conversation because we are not going to win or lose in our investor base based on profit and losses. We're going to win our investors based on ensuring that it's a good fit from a gut feel perspective, because we're about to be married for seven to 10 years in this deal. And so that's the way that I present myself. And it can be challenging, especially if you're an analytical person, you know, all these details about this deal, you get excited. Oh, wow, this guy's a Wharton MBA. So he's going to be really impressed. They may be impressed, but guess what? In 48 hours, they're going to forget who you are. So what's really important is to not jump into those details, especially on the initial call and to learn about their background, explain your background, listen to why they're emotionally motivated to invest and circle the deal that you have as a way to resolve the problems that they have in terms of the mo motivation. And that is something that's talked about in the book, Pitch Anything by Oren Claff, where I think we get this concept that the more advanced we go, the more the emotions don't matter. Nothing can be further from the truth. Anybody that knows anything about VC funding, about investment banking, these deals are getting done by their friends, people that they actually like and trust, and that's it. And everything else is a requirement. Right. <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah, because obviously you're finding out what their pain point is or what they want to get from the investment, and then you can kind of explain how this does it in their terminology. And uh, for a lot of, I have a couple investors off the top of my head that I know of, um, some of my first investors, and. Uh, they don't know anything about, they don't know an IRR. I mean, you can explain to them, you can send it to them. They've never asked. I know they don't, it's, it's cash on cash. They're mm. wanting to have cash on cash. 
if down the road they can get that 15% or 17% IRR, that's, you know, that's something great that they see in the paper. But when I'm explaining to them, it's all in cash and cash. It's, hey, it's 8% prep. And that means, you know, we're 2% of your money back every quarter, whatever it is. And you can use, that's very easy. Anybody can understand that. And um, you understand that all these different things that go with it. So it, it does really matter who you're speaking to, who you're explaining to it and, um, and their experience in business in finance and whatever, you know, in, in whatever the industry is of the asset class that you're trying to, uh, to pitch them. But um, uh, speaking of that, let's, can we talk, just uh, circle back for like a minute or two. I know this is a real estate podcast, but it's interesting because I've had multiple people I've spoken to uh, with ATMs. And uh, can you explain a little bit more about that industry in a nutshell? So the big thing before we even jump into it is that probably 40% of your listener base is about to turn the podcast off because we're <laughs> saying it's a good idea to invest in ATMs. And that is actually really telling. I've been in this industry long enough and invested in asset classes at a wide enough degree that I can tell you that that's about the perfect ratio for long-term lucrative returns. The mobile home park business in 2010, do you know how unpopular I was when I would talk about that? And now look at what has happened. And it's not me that caused it, right? It's just that I had some inclinations, which the market ended up catching on to. This is the same situation with ATMs. So um, I'll give you a couple of metrics. It isn't the case that ATMs all of a sudden are at risk of going out of fashion. Most accredited investors do not use them and have not used them regularly in quite some time. The bulk of the ATM transaction volume is made up of EBT transactions and from people that are unbanked or unbankable, which accounts for about 25% of the United States. So as you see all this banking regulation, it most negatively impacts the exact people who the regulation supposedly is set out to help. When you have regulatory hurdles, you have increased in barriers to entry, which means Bank of America, for example, going from something that their business model almost exclusively relied on interest rates because they're in the business of lending to a business model where 50% of their income is, is generated by fees. But here's what that means. If you have a $150 balance in your bank account and there's a monthly fee of $10 to keep that $150 balance, you don't have a bank account because you're not an idiot. So that's what happens. So people do not have bank accounts and that changes the whole spectrum. So probably some of your listeners are thinking, well, what about Venmo and PayPal and all these other apps that I have? Cause I have a phone. It's not the phone. 92% of America has a phone. The issue is that Venmo and PayPal and these other things, these connect to bank accounts. That's the requirement. So you've got 25% of the population unable to transact without a bank account. And you've got a huge, it's usually 50 to 60%, at least in the locations that we invest in, where these transactions are EBT transactions, which is one of the few government programs that actually work. What I mean by that is that they send you a debit card and the debit card has money on it and you can withdraw it. I don't mean that's a good thing for the economy. I mean, actually, functionally, they send you, it actually happens as opposed to, you know, not working half the time. So that addresses a lot of concerns most investors have. And then it's just a matter of, can you find a great team? Can you find an institutional uh, operator that has done $100 million of transactions in the space, that has relationships and is placed in Fortune 500 companies, retailers all over the world or country, depending on your model? And then it's, you know, it's just about looking at the risk-adjusted situation. But I can't tell you how excited it makes me when 
again, like roughly 30 to 40% of smart investors are going to go, nope, not interested. It's in the ATM business, which we all know is going to be gone in seven years. We'll go back to 1991 or whatever, 1994, when the internet was invented. That was the end of ATMs. And every year since then, it's been the end of ATMs. And what we see, truthfully, we have data to back this up, year-over-year increase in transaction volume. So it hasn't started yet. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly that's what correct. I was reading this article and it was telling me that I guess not counting 2020 because we have you know COVID and stuff, but for the last 25 years or whatever, like you said, 1991, uh, ATM fees have increased every year. So it's obviously something that I'm not sure if it's pegged off inflation or not, but it's also great to have that where you're not getting 25 cents or something which you might have gotten 25 years ago. You know what I mean? Transaction, it's like two or three or yes. four dollars or something. Two to three is reasonable, and again, it's yeah. it's inflation would be one way to to state it, but really what it's about is supply and demand, Mm -hmm. right? In the sense that with the banking regulations and such, with the demand for the product, they can substantiate larger fees. And if you can actually tell which way the wind is blowing, it's not blowing to the ATM business going, going away. It's very much the opposite. And you mentioned COVID, for example, the model that we look at, the model is very lucrative at a reduction by about 30% of transaction volume. So if transaction volume went down by close to 30%, we would still think it was an incredible investment opportunity. During COVID, it went down by about 11% across the portfolio. So that was like the mother of all sensitivity tests. We had ahistorical government lockdowns and it proved quite well because the demand is there regardless of what's going on. People need to get those EBT transactions alone. So I can go on and on, but you can learn more at asymcapital.com. It's a really fascinating space. Okay. Sounds great. And one last question on real estate um, before we wrap up here. Um, How in the age of COVID has your business, uh, how have you managed your investor expectations? I imagine you've had some uh, paused or delayed distributions. So tell us more about your properties during COVID and uh, kind of how you've done it because you work obviously mostly on the investor relations side of it. Yeah. And a good way of stating that too, because- I think that a lot of people want to come on shows and talk about how amazing their business is. And of course, myself included, that's what we want to do. But the reality is that doesn't, you don't learn who you are when things are going perfectly. You don't learn anything about yourself. I mean, all the things that anyone listening to this show, the things that they've really gotten out of life have come out of hardship. Your weaknesses become your strengths, the challenges that you have figure it's when you figure out who you are as a person, as a business owner, et cetera, or an investor, by the way. And COVID has been that for a lot of people. Um, So as far as kind of the distributions and such, one that I think was just kind of bad timing, we have a very large mobile home park and self-storage fund. And one of our strategies there, because the fund was quite large. And so we had a lot of dry powder. And I mean, we as an in conjunction with our sponsor, because we're not involved in operating this fund, but they had a big upper hand in the market because they could purchase assets in all cash, especially in the mobile home park business. That's very desirable because it's very competitive. And so if you can get a significant discount for purchasing in all cash, it makes a lot of sense. Let's say it's a 25%, excuse me, 20 basis point, 25%, 25 basis point kind of uh, reduction. That's an excellent deal in today's market dynamics. Well, there was a lot of assets that were purchased in cash and the, the goal was to refinance cumulatively to get very favorable terms. And I'm talking sub 3% interest rate terms on a mobile home park. And the lending market seized up due to COVID. So 
for several months, we've held these assets in cash, which is not ideal. Of course, that led to a reduction in distributions. And now the lending market's opening up and we just closed on an interest rate of like 2.5% on a very large $12 million loan. So nice. that is incredible. But at the same time, the key to that is diversification. You know, we've done many, many investments, many, many funds with multiple properties. So most of our investors, they understand that that reduction in distribution rate was because of that particular strategy and the timing and such. But from an operations standpoint, things are going quite well, which is shocking by the way, but yeah. that's how it's playing out. Yeah. It's, I don't want to knock on wood or anything, but everything is after we've kind of gone through everything, you know, doing this, uh, we're, we're six months or seven months in the COVID right now as we're filming this. Um, everything's running pretty smoothly. I mean, we, uh, I, I can't say that we have anything that uh, we purchased a new property, 90 units about two months ago. And we're in that uh, kind of initially uh, stabilizing it right now. But everything else that we have has been running pretty smoothly, people paying rent, even with all these moratoriums everywhere. And um, yes, so it's just, uh, it really goes to show and I think that people having problems now, whether they're in the industry, they might not like, you know, student housing, they might not be able to help it so much. But um, in the multifamily or the other commercial industry, uh, you know, mobile homes or self-storage, it just goes down to the asset management. And you can really see how your operators can operate and uh, during exactly the pullback, right. because it's easy to operate in 2011, 2012, when you're just, oh, we're just raising rents and everything's great and everybody's getting distributions, but it's much different when you have unknowns, right? And um, you have less options and, uh, you know, and then the government puts their handcuffs on you with what you can do with your tenants, so... Yes, exactly right. I mean, we've seen, we have a multifamily operator that has done about $800 million of commercial real estate, just a fantastic strategic partner for us. And it's very fascinating. They're in the workforce sector. So some C plus class type of assets that they're converting into B minus B plus. And we did purchase assets right at the end of 2019. So there's a transition period where it's like, there's a new sheriff in town. You either pay or you're going to have to leave kind of thing. We're right we're in the middle of that process, COVID starts happening. And so what we're seeing now is pretty fascinating because we see collections data at the beginning of the month in like the low 80s, you know, at the beginning it was 78%. But then towards the end of the month, it's like 94%. Mm. It's crazy. They're out there nickeling and diming and hustling and creating programs and just doing everything they can every single month from the beginning of the month to the end of the month. And it starts over again. And sometimes it's the same people, sometimes it's different people, but I can see from the data that they're just not quitting. They're not accepting no for an answer and they're just on their grind despite the regulatory challenges. Yeah. So I'm proud can, of the yeah. that partner. It can be done. We're giving out Walmart cards to people that pay on time and doing drawing, all types mm. of stuff to get people to pay on time and uh, get stuff coming in. And our delinquencies in C plus properties are single digits. I mean, um, which is- yeah, which is great for people always say, oh, C plus C is going to get hammered and all this kind of stuff's going to. And if you can, if you have the right property manager, you have the right boots on the ground and you have the right asset manager reviewing everything and keeping an eye. And instead of having those uh, biweekly calls, they're now having weekly calls with, mm. ass, with their property managers and really seeing what's going on. Did this get rented and really getting down to the details? Um, you can you you can really operate your way out of uh, any type of pullback if it's done correctly. But um, love it. And the right uh, asset class, right? That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in workforce, yes. In hotels, man, oh, well, you got to really yeah. be prepared. So, I mean, that's why when you asked me about the asset classes that we focused on, our investment thesis doesn't change. 
I wanted to develop a thesis that was favorable in all states of the economic cycle. And it's just always favorable from my perspective to give up a little bit of the potential upside in those super cyclical investment opportunities and go defensive all the time. We don't go more defensive during COVID. We go, great, this is exactly what we were hoping for, right? Right. That's why you're investing it to minimize your downside risk. So, Exactly. Um, and by the way, just to tie it back into the ATMs, that's an interesting dynamic because the lower the credit scores, the more people that have challenging challenges getting bank accounts, the higher the unemployment rate, the higher, the lower the credit scores, the higher the, the challenges are. And so you have this interesting recession resistant component where the, the more demand there is for the product, the worse the economy does. And I'm always happy to participate in those types of spaces. So Hunter, thank you. Uh, give us a little information. You have a mentorship problem, a problem program. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit more about it? <laughs> yeah, happy to do it. So, um, and first of all, thanks again for, for having me on. So yeah, mentorship program. You know, I'll just briefly, I'll keep it brief. I got into this business in the wake of 2008, which is the wake of the fix and flip $50,000 coaching programs taught by people that had never fixed and flipped a property. And so I was very hesitant to get into the world of any kind of coaching or mentorship or mastermind. Those were cringy words to me 10 years ago because I saw so much devastation. People paid $100,000 and never flipped one house. And so it took me a long time to get around to it. But what happened was that I had an investor who wanted to learn how to build a business similar to the one that we had built and was asking about a resource that I could give him. And there wasn't one especially when it comes to the hybrid approach to investing, where you're investing passively and actively and building a business around that. Um, and so I built it and I'm very proud of it. And now, and not because of its, its quality, I do like the quality, but just seeing people take off like a rocket ship after going through, that's been a cool part of my career. And yeah, you can learn more about that at cfcmentorshipprogram.com. Um, you can also get all my secrets when it comes to raising capital for real estate at raisingcapitalforrealestate.com and investorsasymcapital.com. Kind of great awesome. stuff on all those sites. Okay, I'll put all those links into the podcast and YouTube notes. So thank you so much for coming on today, Hunter, and uh, looking forward to meeting up with you in the future. Thanks again. Hi guys, it's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars Incorporated exclusively. Mm -hmm.